From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Russ. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Dr. Bruce Branham from the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, where he teaches a variety of plant science-based courses, including turfgrass science. Bruce has a long career that began at Michigan State University, and when we met, he led the search committee that hired me in 1990 at MSU as the environmental education specialist. Bruce has also trained some of the thought leaders in our industry, such as Brian Horgan, currently at MSU, and Dave Gardner at The Ohio State University. Bruce and I are about to hold a masterclass in the use of nitrogen in turfgrass systems. And of course, an important aspect of nitrogen use is its application, especially in the sprayable form. And you know, when it comes to spray application, the pros at Frost Spray Technology have the expertise in application technology for you to get the most out of each application. Precision Applications requires the right equipment to get the product applied at the right rate at the right time. Frost Spray Technology has the expertise you can rely on. Learn more about all that Frost offers at frostserve.com. That's frost, S-E-R-V.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi, and I'm with my old pal, actually the person partially responsible for me. So for all of you who are sick of listening to me, you can blame this guy partially <laughs> for hiring me 33 years ago at Michigan State University. Uh, and it's very interesting. I just wrote a letter of recommendation, Bruce, to the Pestside Management Education Program there for a former graduate student who's looking for work. And I figured this is about as full circle as it comes. I'm joined by my friend and professor at the University of Illinois. Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, Bruce Branham. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. And I'm so thrilled to have you here as a close colleague and a friend over the years where we have been able to enjoy some really good food, mm -hmm. spending uh, money we should not have spent that my wife reminded me uh, that I probably shouldn't have spent that money and imbibe some wine that we probably shouldn't have had that second or third bottle of <laughs> uh, and wandered into conversations about nitrogen, right? This is an yep. area where you have spent some of your research life. Of course, not everybody knows what I know, that you're actually a chemist masquerading right. as a weed scientist <laughs> playing around in turf grass nutrient management. So let's start out, Bruce, with some very basics about nitrogen, right? Let's imagine we weren't here, uh, humans weren't <laughs> on the planet, and plants were here, and particularly grasses, because that's the crop we tend to be most interested in, particularly on this podcast. What is the behavior of nitrogen uh, in the natural world? Obviously, the atmosphere is 70% uh, or more yeah. nitrogen. How does it function in a grass system without us fertilizing at all? Well, first of all, thank you for that introduction, Frank. And I guess I would say we're actually getting into a really complex topic because nitrogen has all different forms and moves around a lot. To answer your initial inquiry there, if we were back here in central Illinois, say several thousand years ago, we had these tall grass prairies, mainly fertilized through, you know, animal droppings. Sometimes when the storms, uh, lightning strikes can cause uh, that nitrogen that's in the atmosphere to be released as ammonia. But nitrogen is really difficult for plants to get normally. And so that's why some plants, primarily the legumes, can fix their own nitrogen. That means they convert atmospheric nitrogen, which, by the way, is about 80% of the atmosphere is into. And it's triple-bonded nitrogen, so it's very stable. It's very hard to break apart. It takes a lot of energy to do that. So very few plants can actually do that. 
and actually it's, it's microorganisms that do that. Uh, so nitrogen is hard to come by, and that's why fertilization has really helped not only grow grass, but also grow big grass like corn that we eat. And so we're going to be adding that through our fertilizers that we derive from a process developed over 100 years ago, but still used today, that essentially rips apart those bonds of nitrogen gas to form ammonia, which is, again, one of the most common elements we're going to fertilize with. But what you're getting at is there are a lot of transformations of nitrogen once it's in the soil. So, you know, that's it's kind of a brief primer. Okay, so let's go back to the animal pooping on the grass when we're not here. Once right. it gets going and that mm-hmm. grass starts to grow, obviously I oftentimes talk on the show and in my lectures that grasses actually are partially responsible for building soil, right? Adding organic matter into the soil. Absolutely. Let's say the animal pooped and didn't come back there for five years, those grasses would start to grow and create some organic matter. Let's assume they're getting some rainfall, right? They're on the east side of the 100th meridian, and they're getting some rainfall. What's happening once that system gets a little nitrogen, gets going? What's the processes that those plants can actually sustain themselves without continued nitrogen inputs? So that's an excellent question. Basically, all nitrogen comes in, or most nitrogen comes in through some form of organic matter, either animals that poop on there or plant material that falls on the ground. And then that enters what is the nitrogen cycle, which is a really important concept for people to understand is that the nitrogen cycle, and it is a cycle, is always turning and it's taking organic matter and mineralizing that first to ammonia. And then typically in soils, ammonia is very highly valued. And so not only do plants want it, but microorganisms want it. They actually want it more because it's analogous for those microorganisms to taking in reduced carbon and expelling, as all animals do, and expelling carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of microorganisms or a fair number that can take in ammonia and excrete nitrate. And then that nitrate is often then taken up by the plant converted back into ammonia, and that completes the cycle. And then as those plants die and slough off or leaf material sloughs off, that drops back into the soil. So the problem with that cycle is it's very leaky, mm-hmm. and we, we see a lot of different ways nitrogen can leave the system and not a lot of ways to enter it. Primarily, like I said, it's through organic matter that's deposited in the soil. So if those animals all went away, over time, we'd slowly see the amount of nitrogen in that system start to go down because these loss mechanisms will continue. And so those plants would get maybe less dark green, more pale green uh, over time without continued nitrogen additions. Does that kind of answer your question? It absolutely does. And so the next natural question is, as you said, it has many forms. Mm-hmm. And now we'll sort of advance ourselves a few thousand years to humans in the picture. And I know in crop-based systems, they've been able to test for the amount of nitrogen, and they'll use gaseous ammonia. I see the farmers out where I live here. I'm sure you see them out where you live. They'll inject uh, gaseous ammonia into the soil, somewhat based on a rate that they've been able to test. So on one hand, it's not a sustainable system because it leaks, right? It, It needs organic matter, and over time, you know, that material will leak past where the plant can get it. And it's in different forms when the plants interact with it, you know, nitrate and ammonium. Talk about a little bit the forms that it's in and maybe why, in your mind, we can't do what ag does. Mm. So, you know, ag is 
driven by cost, and the cheapest form of nitrogen is anhydrous ammonia, as you're talking about, mm-hmm. which is a gaseous form that they have to knife into the soil, and then it'll rapidly pick up an extra proton and become ammonium. So ammonia is NH3, and that's a gas, and ammonium, NH4+, plus, is a cation, and it's going to be you know, in, the, in the solution in, in water. So they can do that, and they do that because it's cheap. We put on other sources of nitrogen, like urea or some kind of nitrate, primarily because we don't have any way of knifing it into the soil without totally destroying the turf. Right. But the thing about nitrogen, it can come in so many different, you might say, flavors, but really you separate them out into two ways you can apply nitrogen. You can put a quick-release source, like urea, for in turf, or a slow-release source, which can be something like a composted poultry manure product mm-hmm. or, you know, kind of going back to the original thing we we're talking about, yeah. taking animal waste and turning it into a fertilizer product. Or we can coat various forms of nitrogen, principally urea, with things like sulfur or plastics or resins to cause them to release slower. But again, those are kind of the basic elements that we can use for fertilization. But they all suffer from the same thing. They're going to enter that cycle and they get converted essentially into either ammonium or nitrate, which are what plants or microorganisms can use. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that ag has a test for those forms of nitrogen that then guides their ability to use the inexpensive forms of nitrogen. Why don't we have that test in turf systems? Well, they like to say they do, but in reality, <laughs> the tests don't work all that well. Okay. And so what we see and what is a big problem in agriculture today is nitrate runoff from agricultural fields. Mm-hmm. And again, let's go back. Nitrate doesn't really run off in the sense that it's moving across the profile, you know. Mm-hmm. It runs off of agricultural fields because, like for here in Illinois, they're all tile-drained. So the tiles intercept the downward-flowing water, which contains the nitrate, and then the drains move it across the field and they dump it into a drainage ditch or whatever, a river or stream, Mm -hmm. and eventually it goes down the Gulf of Mexico. Right. And if you look at the drainage basin for the Gulf of Mexico, it's huge. It covers almost two-thirds of the United States. Yeah. Far East Ohio, all the way out into Nebraska. Yeah, there's a wonderful image I've seen of that. Looks like a network of veins yes, uh, going exactly. across the United States. And of course, as you're describing it, it reminds me that what this has resulted in, this movement, this loss, the fate of this applied N in these systems has two causes primarily, I would imagine. One is the plants aren't always there and an otherwise leaky system leaks out, and then it's resulted in this dead zone that I think is the size of the state of Connecticut in the Gulf, primarily a a result from nitrogen loss. So you're saying that that soil test that they use is not very accurate and somewhat culpable in this problem. There are a variety of soil tests, and none of them really adequately characterize, and I'm not sure we're I shouldn't say ever be able to, but part of the problem is, you know, there's so many factors that affect nitrogen availability because it is very mobile and labile. And so Mm -hmm. how much organic matter is left over from last year? You know, if you're a corn farmer, you reincorporate some of that leaf material in. Well, that leaf material has almost no nitrogen in it, so it's going to suck some of the nitrogen out as it gets degraded. And so it's hard to know all these things are going to happen. But the bottom line is for corn farming or for agriculture, 
nitrogen is cheap, and so it's often it makes sense to put on at least economically more than you might need mm. because if you lose yield, that's real money lost. Mm. If you lose yield from not having enough nitrogen, so they always tend to want to be a little bit over, mm. and that's part of the reason we leach so much nitrogen. Mm. But they don't want to admit that, Frank. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting that they don't want to admit it, but also have begun to adapt the land so that it isn't bare for 200 days a year. And you're starting to see the advent of cover crops, or am I mistaken about that? Well, you do see cover crops being used, but the percent adoption is still quite low in the state. Mm. And I got to tell you a quick story because it cracks me up. We had a researcher here who was really looking into this toast hypoxia issue and nitrate leaching. And the Corn Growers Association told him, oh, it's not us. It's the golf courses. They use lots of nitrogen. (laughs) And he came to me, I'm like, you know, there's, there might be a couple of thousand acres of fertilized turf on our golf courses. How many acres of corn and soybeans are there? He said, only like 22 million in Illinois. So, Well, it's interesting because I was confronted with the same question, and I'm going to ask you this question because we have been interacting with the Skinny Atlas watershed people. This is a, one of the Finger Lakes. Uh, The Mm -hmm. northern portion of it is the uh, vacation land for uh, the Syracuse, New York area. In the old days, it was the place they could take the horse and buggy or the Model T uh, out to the lake and enjoy themselves. And all around this lake is primarily farms, a a few big CAFOs, but Mm -hmm. a lot of crop farming and one golf course. (laughs) And the golf course (laughs) happens to sit right next, about 100 yards from the intake for the drinking water supply for the city of Syracuse. So this has been a a fairly hot button issue that we've been involved in. And the farmer came up to me after I gave a presentation trying to give them a perspective on the way we use nitrogen on golf courses. And he said, you guys are the problem, much like you heard, Bruce. We take our nitrogen off in a crop. Yours Mm -hmm. stays there. Why do you keep adding it? Where is it going? What's your answer? Well, they only take a portion off, and our system is, A, not highly fertilized any longer. Right. And that's because over a long period of time, you do build up a lot of organic matter in a turf system. I think, as you mentioned earlier, you know, grasses are tremendous soil builders, but they can't build forever. Mm-hmm. You know, So that's one of the issues and questions that I can't resolve is why do we need to keep adding nitrogen to turf every year if it's a closed system? And a lot of us, you know, if, if you're returning clippings, it is kind of a closed system. Mm. And that's where we, we said earlier, it's also that cycle is leaky. Mm. And so we do see, you know, nitrates leaving the system. We see gases coming off of the system that contain nitrogen. And so that's I think why we have to keep adding every year is because we lose some, but we don't lose very much compared to what happens in what you mentioned, Mm. a farming operation, because even if they put in cover crops, that does help suck up some of the nitrogen. If if they leave the ground bare, you're going to lose a lot of nitrogen out of that system Mm. because most of the leaching occurs when we have heavy rains, which often is, and and no evaporation, which is. You know, obviously, when you have nothing there to evaporate, you're not you're anytime you have a rain, it's generally moving down. It's pulling nitrogen with it. 
Okay, Bruce, we have just started the masterclass on nitrogen here, laying some groundwork. When we come back after this message, we're going to get into a little bit more practical applications of golf turf management and how we impact the nitrogen cycle and also supplement nitrogen applications with fertilizer. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with my friend, Dr. Bruce Branham from the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Nitrogen fertilization requires a thoughtful approach and reliance on science and research. My friends at the Plant Food Company have research-backed products that supply various forms of nitrogen that optimize your response and minimize potential losses. As you are putting together your nutrient management program, trust your Plant Food Co. rep to provide you with the latest technology that supports plant health and maximizes playability. Learn more about this at plantfoodco.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with my friend, Dr. Bruce Branham from the University of Illinois. Before we get back to nitrogen, Bruce, your career has come a bit full circle. You were a graduate student of the great Al Turgeon at the University of Illinois at the same place you inhabit today. Is that correct? That's correct. I still have his phone number. Oh, no kidding. You have his office phone number. Exactly. Okay. And of course, other little known facts, you were in graduate school with Kirk Herdo, who was uh, True Green Chemlon, Dave mm-hmm. Weiner, who went on to San Luis Obispo, I believe, was Danny Berger in that mix for a little while? Danny Berger was there for a while, yep. Okay, any names, any big names I'm missing? Well, we talked about Bill Torello. Oh, right, Bill was a graduate student with you as well, right? Yeah, and Dave Chalmers, who was an extension specialist at Virginia Tech for many years. Yeah, and now is lost in South Dakota or something, South Dakota. right? Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> Somewhere in the hinterlands. Okay. So, all right, Bruce, let's get back to the nitrogen conversation. Sure. And we will start with the behavior in the soil again. One of the things I talk about a lot on the program with a lot of different people, and it's certainly a conversation amongst golf course superintendents, is the role of organic matter and how much uh, we rely on various types of cultivation, soil management techniques, primarily cultivation, solid tine, hollow tine, ninja tine, needle tine, you name the tine. We figured out how to drive a piece of metal in the ground. But fundamentally, I would say the biggest reason why many turf grass managers continue to employ this tactic in a variety of settings is because you see this oftentimes enormous growth response on the other side of airification. Can you talk a little bit about how making a hole and creating some increased surface area of the soil potentially leads to that recovery response or looks like growth to me? Oh, that's a very good question, Frank. I hadn't thought about why we get that pop, but I I would assume it's mostly due to extra nitrogen being available to the plants because when not only you open up that soil, you introduce a lot of air into the soil that normally doesn't get in there. And that's going to spur microbial growth and that's going to cause turnover of that nitrogen cycle to increase. So the nitrogen cycle we're talking about is always spinning, but it's going to spin at different rates depending on things like soil temperature, moisture, and certainly oxygen levels. So As you get optimum levels of oxygen, temperature, and moisture, you're going to see a lot more nitrogen coming off. 
And that's one reason why in the cool season turf, we don't need to fertilize as much in the summertime because that soil supplies, you know, I always say it's about two thirds of the nitrogen that you take out of the soil every year. Now we're going to return it back in clippings and so on. But what goes into the plant, two thirds of that roughly comes from the organic matter and probably a third or so comes from our fertilization activities. And so try as we might, we, we don't really control the growth. Right. The soil controls the growth. Right. We're just kind of adding at the edges. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about those supplemental uh, practices. We'll get a little bit into sources now. And since you mm-hmm. brought up the summer months and the what we describe as mineralization of nitrogen, right? The conversion of right. it from the organic form into a, or from a, a less soluble form or a labile form or recalcitrant form right. into a soluble form. Even under high temperatures, the plants can extract that nitrogen in the root system from that soil solution. Correct. So why do I often hear about well, I should use nitrate when it's hot. I should apply foliar nitrogen when it's hot because the roots aren't functioning. Can you talk a little bit about that mantra I hear from the foliar fertilization people about how maybe the roots aren't functioning, the form of nitrogen matters? Uh, Where does that all play into the way the plants are taking it up? So foliar fertilization is a really good idea because typically while we get a third of our nitrogen from the fertilizer, what we also see is that when we apply nitrogen to the soil, and this is another third, but it's it's a different third, but only about a third will actually be used by the plant. Mm. In other words, if we tag it with something that we can trace, best we can get is about a third of it, 20 to 30% goes actually into the plant. The rest stays in the soil or goes somewhere else, Mm. we don't know. But the foliage is an absorbing surface. So if you apply nitrogen in a liquid form, so it first hits the plant foliage, you're going to get some uptake from that, 15, 20% maybe going in, or 10 to 20% goes in, and then the rest will get washed into the soil anyway. So when you apply something granular, you're bypassing the foliage, and you're going straight to that root uptake. When you apply something foliar, you're not doing away with the root uptake, but you're giving the foliage first a chance to take some in, and then the rest can go in through the foliage. So you have more efficient application from a foliar application. As far as needing to apply nitrate in the summertime, I'm not sure I really buy that, but certainly we all know that root functioning, root growth and so on all slows down or stops in the summertime. doesn't mean roots aren't active, but it may mean the root volume gets a little shallower in the summertime. I always think roots tend to die back Mm -hmm. as we get in those really hot months of the summer. So there's some truth to that. But again, when you're applying nitrogen, most of that uptake is going to occur in the top two inches. And unless you've got a really, 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 really shallow root zone, you're going to have enough roots there to take it up if it's available. Okay. So two things about foliar. One is if you're going to rely on foliar uptake, I would assume the finer the droplets, the lower the spray volume, much like herbicide foliar absorption, the more effective that absorption is. So two gallons of water per thousand is not going to be effective as one gallon of water per thousand in spray volumes. Am I correct? You are correct. Okay. What about the form of N? Does the form of N, I know you don't necessarily buy the nitrate thing, but we see a lot of liquid methylene ureas, you know, obviously you can apply ammonium sulfate in right. that form, uh, potassium nitrate uh, in that form. 
Is there any particular form that you would say to a superintendent if they really wanted to drive down their spray volumes and, and really get foliar absorption that you would encourage them to use? No, actually, you know, we did some research on that and found that we couldn't really see any difference in uptake, whether you're using ammonium sulfate, calcium nitrate, urea, they all go in roughly the same amount. So all factors being equal, I don't see a difference in source. I haven't looked at things like methylene ureas. I don't know if because those are longer molecules or bigger molecules, they might not go in as well, or they might not be degraded as well inside the plant. But certainly urea, calcium nitrate, ammonium sulfate are all going to give you about the same response. So let's turn a little bit to some trends in turf grass fertilization. Let's start with one that's been around for a really long time, and that is uh, the use of urease inhibitors, right? We use a lot of urea. Uh, there are a mm-hmm. lot of products on the market. What do they call them? Controlled release versus slow release, or I think right. they've even got a new name for them, efficient release, or I can't keep track. Yeah. I know you've played around with this a little bit. Can you speak to how straight urea might work compared to, you know, urea triazone or urea with urease inhibitors? Sure. There are some, a lot of products sold, you know, with urease inhibitors, They have been shown under certain conditions to be beneficial, but under turf conditions, under golf course turf conditions, I have not seen any real benefit from them. So I don't really think they are a value proposition for most golf course superintendents. So that's your way of saying that you get the same intensity and longevity of response from straight urea as you do from controlled release sources. Um, no, I'm talking simply urea stabilizers that are supposed to reduce the rate of conversion of urea to ammonia. Okay. So urease inhibitors, essentially. But no, a controlled release product, certainly those give a much different release pattern than straight urea. Yeah. So controlled release, I'm not talking about coating. I'm talking about the urease inhibitors. Ah, you don't okay. see a okay. difference between straight no. urea and urease inhibitors as far as longevity of response. Correct. Okay. And and by the way, we've done a study with N15 labeled, and we had a company down in, I think it was in Alabama, that actually then prepared that coated product with the labeled fertilizer, just the way you, you would buy it off the shelf. And we compared those, and we saw absolutely no difference. Now, let's get to the coated stuff, right? Okay. We see, you know, spread it and forget it. Uh, There's trade names like Polyon. There's, of course, Mm sulfur-coated urea that's maybe a little old school. Let's talk about these polymer-coated products that can release 120, uh, 160 days. Have you looked at them, and do you think they're viable options when maybe labor might be limited? Absolutely. I I think those products have uh, real utility in turf management, maybe not so much like green seas and fairways, but certainly rough fields where you, you, the idea that you may want to limit the number of trips you make across the field, they absolutely provide you with some real long-term response. So yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of those kinds of products, but it's got to be the right application. You know, again, I think highly managed turf, you really don't want something that you're not controlling the release in my opinion. Okay. So let's wrap up this segment here with a little bit about how nitrogen, you know, we, we've talked a lot about how it converts in forms, right, Bruce? It, it's organic. Right. It's the way, way we apply it. 
It can be impacted by all these things, but ultimately the plant's got to take it up, right? And my understanding recently has been uh, that it's moving with the, you know, mass flow with the water movement, so to speak, Mm -hmm. so that as evaporative demand is driving water movement, uh, the pressure is created at the root interface, and you get that draw of water, nitrogen's in solution, and depending on the form, let's just assume it's a nice soluble form, the plant takes it up. So is there this intimate link between water movement and nitrogen uptake? And you won't get as much nitrogen uptake if you're not getting as much water movement. I think that's largely true. I mean, there are, there are some active forms of nitric uptake by plants. It's not just passively or that's taking it in. Mm-hmm. But certainly when you have high evapotranspiration going on, you're going to have more water moving in, more nitrate being taken into the plant, mostly nitrate, some ammonia, but mostly nitrate. Okay. So the plant will want to preferentially take up the nitrate. No, actually, it's the other way around. Uh, you know, nitrate is really the waste product, the poop, you might say, of microorganisms. Plants are the only organisms that can take nitrate, which is of no biological significance, frankly, Mm. and convert that back into ammonium. And then that goes into all the proteins, amino acids, everything else that uses nitrogen in a plant. So the plants use a lot of their photosynthetic energy to take nitrate and turn it back into ammonia. So they would and can use ammonium. If they get too much, it can be toxic because they're not used to it. But Small amounts, they'll use it just fine and they don't have to expend energy in it. It's really the fact that those microorganisms, that's their livelihood. They, they die if they don't get it, whereas plants can subsist on that as well. So it's really not maybe preferred because it takes a lot of energy, uh, plant energy to convert that back into ammonia, but it is the way they get it most of the time. So as we think about how the plants are taking up that nitrogen you know, obviously you're familiar with Wayne Cousseau and Doug mm-hmm. and Bill talk about nutrient demand and how by growing more, that places a greater demand on nutrients in the soil, right? Because as the plant is growing, it's, right. it's demanding more. Is it the same? I'm not as familiar with this literature. I'm hoping you are. When you stimulate growth, are you also using more water? <laughs> Water use, no, you would be to the extent that you have more leaf surface area. Mm -hmm. So on a bigger plant, you're going to use more water than a smaller plant. Now, when we start mowing like that, as we do in turf, we really limit the amount of leaf area. So really then the water use is really controlled by the atmospheric demand, by the temperature, the amount of sunlight you see in those those plants, the amount of energy that's being deposited on that leaf surface is really what determines how much water is being used. Okay. The other trend in uh, nitrogen fertilization or fertilizers in general is what we are starting to call carbon fertilization, right? We're adding carbon sources, Mm -hmm. lowering the nitrogen that's supplied in the fertilizer. And what looks like sugar to me Mm -hmm. uh, is in the fertilizer. Am I safe in assuming that that carbon is stimulating microbes that are breaking down the nitrogen that's accumulated in the surface organic matter? Or is there something else going on with this carbon fertilization? Wow. That's a really good question, uh, Frank. You know, I used to think that carbon fertilization would make sense, particularly on like a putting green where plants are, because we mow them so closely, they're they're obviously going to be energy, you might say, lacking Mm -hmm. compared to a nice, healthy plant that's not mowed. So I thought, yeah, let's add some carbon and see. And we couldn't get any appreciable amount 
of carbon to go in. I mean, you can get some in through the foliage, but in the sense of what the plant needs, it was minimal. So what you're talking about is adding a little organic matter, essentially, mm -hmm. to the soil and hoping that will help. And I guess when you calculate how much organic carbon is already present in the soil, I don't really see that making a huge difference. So I, I don't see a lot of value in this carbon fertilization idea. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with my friend, Dr. Bruce Branham. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Nitrogen behavior in soils is very dependent on soil organic matter, soil temperature, and soil moisture. Managing these vital soil physical properties requires good management. And for that, you should turn to Dryject services that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Clearly, the value of sand injection can benefit soil nitrogen cycling and create those sand channels that aid in optimizing oxygen levels. Dryject Services offers the most effective way to get the most out of your sand applications. Contact your local Dryject representative for more information or visit dryject.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with my friend, Dr. Bruce Branham. And Bruce, looks like we're getting you prior to retirement. We'll yep. take a little personal note here. You were kind enough to share that uh, at the end of the calendar year, your formal academic career will come to a close at the University of Illinois. Is that correct? That's correct. And uh, in the last few years, you've been doing some teaching outside of turf, right? I think we were yakking uh, not long ago and you were saying something about a vegetable production class. Yeah, I teach a vegetable production class. I teach a uh, urban agriculture course. And that's, you know, the example of the state of the turf grass industry, in my mind, is that students used to come here wanting to study turf, wanting that kind of job. And and it's not just turf. It seems across a lot of these kind of hands-on, get-your-hands-dirty professions that we're not seeing very many kids in there. Hmm. So I'm going to teach my turf class this year, but just to two students. So. Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah. uh, and that's quite a drop-off from the many years of a turf program that had four or five faculty deep and lots of undergrads, maybe 10 or 15 to 20 yep. in the whole program over the time. So things have changed quite a bit. Now, let's go back into some of the work that I know you started when I was at Michigan State with you. You decided to bang these uh what, four-foot coffee cans into the ground, which I was like, what <laughs> yeah. the hell is this guy doing? And obviously that's continued. And it really now, I guess we're in the phase of talking about the fate of nitrogen, right? You touched mm -hmm. on it a little bit in the agricultural setting, and you certainly have alluded to and said directly, we're a bit of a leaky system. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's start with that long-term experiment that you started, which was, I believe, on a silty loam soil, a bluegrass yep. turf. Yep. And you had two rates of nitrogen, five pounds of N per thousand per year and two pounds of N per thousand per year. And why don't you take it from there? Obviously, you, you did it for a few years and then Kevin Frank has kept it up for the better part of 30 years now. Yes. Uh, things have changed a little bit along the way. But let's start out with what you initially found or what was initially found maybe in the first decade of that study. Yeah, so that study was started, and this goes back to when Jim Baird was at Michigan State, and we wrote a grant. Here in Illinois, we have what we call the Moral Plots, which are the oldest continuous agricultural study in, in the United States. They were started in like 18-something or other, and uh, they've been growing corn and soybeans on those plots ever since. 
Mm-hmm. And so I thought we need something like that in turf so we can look at these long-term impacts because it's a perennial crop. So we started the study and the idea is we put a high rate of in and a low rate of in. We start off with five pounds of in. And after a couple of years, and, and I do want to make sure I wrote the original grant with Jim, but Jim left and Kevin Frank came in and Kevin's done all the sampling since. But what he saw was that that five pound rate after a couple of years, we were pouring huge amounts of nitrogen out of those systems. You know, the, the drinking water standard is 10 parts per million of nitrate nitrogen. We were over 20 parts per million on, on an annual basis from those five-pound rates. The two-pound rates, they trended up, and they got up, you know, maybe on an annual basis of four to five parts per million nitrate nitrogen, but they never exceeded on an annual basis 10, the drinking water standard. So the first thing after a few years of that, Kevin made a decision to drop the in rate down to four pounds of in, which is more reasonable. Five pounds is too much anyway. And when they did that, then the nitrate leaching started dropping fairly dramatically. So, you know, those levels went back below. And frankly, I honestly, I don't understand. It's been one of my missions to figure out why they go down, because it doesn't make as much sense to me that they would. As I recall, it took at least six or seven years till that high rate started leaking out. Maybe I'm mistaken about that. It did. I was surprised because five pounds did seem like a lot that they would leak right away. And you were collecting the water. I believe it was four feet down that little cave you built next to the right exactly. next to the sampling device, right? Where, where you right. could go down and, and, and it was a little spigot. My understanding was that it took quite a number of years uh, for it to really start to release that nitrogen. But once it did, it continued to release it until it doesn't seem like a one pound drop would make that much of a difference. And that's what you remain confused about. Well, a couple of things. So I'm, I'm looking at that study right now, and I think they started applying it in 1998. And by 2000, it was at 14, almost 15 oh. parts per million nitrogen. Then went to 18, 25, 2003, it reached 30. Okay, And that's three times uh, the drinking water standard, and that's averaged over the entire year. So that Mm. means, you know, there were probably very high levels and then lower levels, and the average Mm. came out to 30 parts per million. So that was quite high. So then that was dropped down a pound. And I I do think it makes some sense, Frank, in that when you exceed what the plants can utilize, you should expect that a lot of that will just leave the system as nitrate. Okay, so let's go to your work with Brian Horgan. Okay. Now the Elder Paul's replacement, and he'll get a chuckle out of this. You and I can get a <laughs> chuckle because we all worked together with Elder yep. years ago when we worked together at Michigan State. So Brian is now the chair of the Crop and Soils Department at Michigan State University. Prior to that, he was a graduate student with you yep. and looked at a essentially attempted a mass balance of, right. uh, you know, where's all the nitrogen? Right. And what I remember about that, again, my memory is not as good as yours uh, about this. You were don't, had a uh, front row seat. I was in the 50th row uh, <laughs> paying attention to this. What I recall was you couldn't find it all. So can you at least go through what you did, where you found it, and where's the gap? Well, that that's kind of your, when you when you asked me about doing this, you wanted to say, you know, what are the <laughs> things we don't know about nitrogen? And that's one of them. Yeah. is we don't understand why we can't account for all of the nitrogen we apply. So in Brian's case, the study they did, we specifically used potassium nitrate as the fertilizer source, and that eliminates then ammonia volatilization as a pathway for loss. Right. So when we apply urea, it converts into ammonium, 
and ammonium, if it's a basic environment, you can pull in the hydrogen off and have ammonia gas and it will come off. And that does happen. Mm-hmm. So we do lose it that way. So we eliminated that. How much is lost? Max, worst case. I'd say if you really tried, you might lose 25 to 30 percent. Okay, that's a lot. And that's bad, right, from a greenhouse yeah. gas perspective, because nitrogen is 300 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon. Yes, but not, not ammonia. Uh, we don't want to put nitrogen gas into the atmosphere, but ammonia itself is not a greenhouse gas. Okay. The other loss mechanism that occurs under anaerobic conditions when there's no oxygen in the soil or limited oxygen is what we call denitrification. And in denitrification, you, you go from nitrate to nitrogen gas, N2, which is common in the atmosphere. But the last step before that is nitrous oxide, N2O. Mm -hmm. So the final step is N2O gets converted to nitrogen gas. That doesn't always happen. So sometimes we leak that nitrous oxide out, and that's the potent greenhouse gas. That's 300 times more light trapping than carbon dioxide. And so that's the concern with fertilization in general is that when you have excess nitrogen, you see more of this denitrification occurring, and then you see more nitrous oxide loss. Okay, but we're talking about max 20%, on average, 5 10%? For ammonia loss? Yeah. If you apply your fertilizer and you water it in, unless the pH is really high in your soil, like if it's 9 or something like that, you might see more loss than that. But if you do it right, if you apply urea and you water it in, you're going to probably have less than 5% loss and probably more like 2 to 3%. Okay, so we got the atmospheric end added away. And let's assume when you did it, you accounted for it, you protected against it. What's next? So the ammonia is one form. The other form is this denitrification. And that's what we really tried to measure. Because again, when we do mass balance studies, what we've always done in the past is we measure leachate. We measure what's in the plant and what's in the soil. And then what we can't account for, we assume just volatilized off as ammonia or nitrogen gas. And so it was convenient because we could just say, oh, we only got 60% back, so we lost 40% of gaseous losses. Well, Brian said, let's measure all those. So we, again, by using potassium nitrate as a fertilizer source, we didn't have ammonia volatilization. And then we had these chambers built that would enclose them for three hours at a time, allow anything to build up in there, and then we'd sample that airspace to see how much nitrogen loss we were getting. We had a tagged fertilizer. We knew no matter what format it was in, we could track it down. And we did that, and we accounted for leaching, for what's in the soil, what's in the plant. And I think our highest recovery was like 73%. Okay. And that's highest. And what's in the organic matter too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we covered everything. So in other words, we did a mass balance, and we still can't account for maybe a quarter or more of what Mm -hmm. we applied. And we really don't know where it went. What do you suspect? I'm thinking that it has to be, I mean, it's got to be lost. And so it potentially is more gaseous loss than what we're able to measure. But again, I don't know why that would be. And when you did this, when you do a mass balance, this was all labeled in. This is nitrogen that you can track effectively. This isn't just, oh, potassium nitrate. Let me just sample Kelvin nitrogen and see what's there. You've got traceable nitrogen and 20 some odd percent you can't find, could it have converted to a form that you couldn't detect? 
Again, I don't think so, because what we do is we sample. By the way, I mean, Brian was very painstaking, and he did a lot of legwork to make sure we were getting everything right. One of the things we found is that you can have these hot spots of nitrogen, and so we took the entire core and went through all kinds of processing to get that down to a very fine powder that we could pass through a 0.15 millimeter sieve, Hmm. and then we would pull samples from that and analyze it. And we thought we did it all right. And, and one of the things I regret is that we haven't had more ability to look further into that. Cause I think it's an important issue is where, where this stuff is actually going. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would think, right. I mean, we pay for it all. It'd be nice to know, you know, where it's going. Um, you know, we haven't touched on, you know, the surface movement of nitrogen loss. It isn't necessarily accounted for in your, in your mass balance work. Cause you're assuming it's, you know, all staying there and not sheeting off. There's been a lot of uh, runoff work done. Watchkey did some work years and years ago on plots mm-hmm. that I think had so many earthworms in it. You'd need a 5,000 year storm to get runoff. At right. least that's was my assumption about that work. Let's say you've got a dense turf, you make an application on a slope surface. Do you suspect when the soil is not saturated that you're not going to get much movement of that material along the surface? We've seen very little evidence of that that happens, and I wouldn't expect it to happen unless you see, like, uh, you look in the distance and the storm clouds are rolling up, and you thought, I got to get this application down before the storm hits. Mm-hmm. That you might move some actual granules under those cases. Mm-hmm. But once that fertilizer element, because it is so water soluble, it's going to move into the soil. And once it's in a turf, it ain't moving out. So, yeah. you know, that's like, like Paul Rieke used to say when we were at Michigan State, you know, we put those boxes out and we put the fertilizer down within that box to know how much we put down. Yeah. You never saw it bleed out at all. No matter how much rain you had, you had these right. straight lines, right, where the fertilizer was stopped. So I don't think we're going to see, or we should not expect much overland movement of nitrate, maybe some ammonia. But again, turf is so effective at tying it up so quickly because it's Mm -hmm. such an active environment. You know, that's the thing we have going for us that I hope everybody appreciates is that turf is a really dynamic environment. When you put something on there, it doesn't stay in that form very often for very long because there's a lot of things, a lot of microorganisms, a lot of plant material lot of organic matter to suck all that stuff up yeah it's a scavenger based system everything is trying to scavenge it it's a yeah it's one of those scarce resources that many things rely on all right listen we're going to wrap it up here and okay. i want to put you a little bit on the spot and see after all these years of working and the sort of path we've taken through our discussion today in new york we have uh, had some legislation come along and saying this much nitrogen at one time this much nitrogen over a year uh, this much nitrogen in a bag of fertilizer trying to get regulations and i've tried to scour the literature look at my former colleague marty petrovic's work your work eric miltner brian's uh, Carl yards everybody that's played around with this area in this area and i've tried to come up with what i think is a justifiable amount of nitrogen and, and and you know obviously it might be different for cool and, and for warm season grasses but i guess what i'm interested in from your perspective do you believe there's a nitrogen rate that every turf grass manager can find that won't leak out seeing as it is a leaky system right mm-hmm. that won't leak out that you can justify 
here's the amount of N I, I really need for this lawn or this golf course or this sports field. Is that a viable goal to have something we could justify and say it's not contributing to these potential environmental problems? That's a really interesting idea. I would say that like, if you look at some of the older research, you'll see that nitrate leaching is a natural phenomenon. And so if you don't fertilize at all, you're going to still see some nitrate leaching out of there. Not going to be much, but it's going to be measurable. So I think what we're saying is really we want to look for the minimum amount that we can put down to get a certain level of quality. And a lot of that will depend upon, I hate to say this, but you know, there's complexities like the soil type and particularly how much organic matter is present. Certainly, uh, the longer we have a turf there, we're going to have more organic matter and that should translate into less nitrogen being needed. I think we see that on golf courses that have been there a long time, you know, that we can get by with a tenth of a pound or 0.05 pounds every week or whatever. And you're really not putting on a whole lot of nitrogen in those systems, but yet you get good growth. That's because you've got so much organic matter there. But to try to make a general rule of thumb, it probably doesn't work. If you convert a, an old, I mean, I hate to say this, but an agricultural field and you put it into a new housing development, you're going to need more nitrogen to get those plants to grow at all because over time, those agricultural fields lose organic matter. So the turf will build it back up for you. So I, I think it's a complex topic, Frank. And so I, I guess I'm kind of ducking your question, but I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to that. Uh, right. But it certainly, uh, here's what I say. I'll summarize this way. You know, we have 40 million acres of turf in the United States. It's the third or fourth largest crop, depending on how much wheat's grown each year in the country. What we do on golf courses and football fields and so on is important, but it's not really consequential because the acreage is so small. What we do on home lawns, however, does matter because the acreage is so large. And so there we need to work towards lower levels of inputs less nitrogen, less water, and so on, because it will make a difference. Whereas on a golf course, A, they're already using low rates, but the acreage is so small that if you do have a little nitrate leaching, it's probably not going to contribute much to any kind of environmental problem. What I try to tell homeowners is put on less nitrogen. Especially because it's primarily for aesthetic purposes once you've got full turf cover. Exactly. But you do want to have, you know, I had a neighbor who kind of went to the extreme and never, they never fertilized. And then the turf gets so open that you're starting to see soil being eroded off. And that's not a good thing. So you, you want to have enough density to hold everything in place and to be somewhat attractive. But, you know, the idea that we used to have of this perfect dark green lawn on every block is not a good idea. Bruce, thanks a lot for chatting with me. It is uh, always a joy to hear your voice. I, I look forward to possibly sharing a meal again. And, and I'll thank you publicly for all those years ago uh, sticking up for me when Vargas wanted to throw <laughs> me in the sewer. <laughs> and I had to come back out just to make nice. And, you know, I'll forever love Joe for uh, turning around on yeah. me and all you guys for uh, accepting me so uh, resoundingly at Michigan State when I started there all these those years ago. Uh, thanks for that, and, and thanks for this. Really appreciate well, you taking the Frank, time. Frank, I have a good eye for talent. That's what I'll say. <laughs> all right. Bruce Branham, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. Big thanks to Bruce Branham. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day.
You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.